this week we're going to be reading from 1 Kings 19, 9 through 13. This is where the Lord is speaking to Elijah. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And before, I mean, excuse me, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in, earth, in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Amen. Good morning. It's great to be here with everybody. We are at the climax of the story. I don't know if anybody likes story, like telling and <clears throat> uh, building stories. And Do I have any writers in here, actually? Do, are there any some writers? Yeah. Uh, so much foreshadowing and build up and Easter eggs and all those different literary devices. My Marvel friends are like, Easter eggs, I know what those are. All comes to this moment, uh, this scene of Elijah that we've been in the last few weeks that we're call, uh, this series that we've been calling Journey to Renewal. And so let me just recap a little bit for those that are joining us either for the first time or haven't been here with us the whole time. We're looking at this story of Elijah, and in 1 Kings 18, he's done these amazing things. God showed up in really, really powerful ways through him. But then the king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, try to kill him. And so he goes on this journey. And so in this journey, it starts with him, what we called coming to an end of ourselves. There was a catalytic moment that he realized that he did not have it within himself to continue on the path. And so God invited him into this journey of coming to an end of himself. He eventually got some rest, got some sleep, got some food, got some water. I mean, the physical attributes of how we are created are important here. But then he went on this 40-day journey. And so this is now coming to the end of this 40-day journey. And so here he is, all the hardship, a point, a reason why he's now discovering why a loving God would take him on this journey in the first place. Why in the world do we have to come to an end of ourselves? Why do we have to experience times and seasons of life where there's suffering and difficulty and struggle? Why are there times where we don't know what's going on and yet God seems to be leading us right in the middle of it. We find out why today in this story. So let's look at verse 9. If you don't have your Bible, I'm going to be going kind of more verse by verse today. So uh, open it up. It's 1 Kings chapter 9. And this story, he gets to the lodge and then a word of the Lord came to him. And notice what the word of the Lord says. It says, what are you doing here? 
Elijah had just spent the last 40 days and 40 nights traveling at a painfully slow pace. He's still dealing with the idea that there's people trying to kill him. He's dealing with this internal emptiness, this frustration of being on the run. It's easy to see the frustration, anger, and sadness coursing through his heart. A few weeks ago, we gave you the Wheel of Feels, which is the name it, uh, the feel it, name it. If you gave that to Elijah at that moment, you can imagine that he's going to probably be experiencing a wide range of emotions. He'd be pointing all over the map. So Elijah shows up. He's, on the, he's out in the cave. And what happens? He gets some rest. He lodges in it. And God begins a conversation with him. Now in God's pursuit, he does what God does many times throughout scripture. What does God do and how often does God start a conversation? What does he start with? A question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What's going on with that? Does God not know? Does God not even know where he is? Now, God often asks questions of us and throughout the scriptures, not to physically locate someone, but he asks questions to draw them out relationally, to help the person identify where they are, even emotionally. Now, we know that this is common, and he does the same thing to Adam and Eve. So for a few minutes, I want to flip over. So if you have your Bible, go to the beginning, the first two pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. He does the same thing to them. So Adam and Eve are, have just eaten the forbidden fruit. The serpent tempts them. And what are, they, what are they tempted with? They're tempted to be like God. And what do they do? They eat the forbidden fruit. It's not an apple, just for the record. And I know we like to think it's an apple, but those aren't apples out there. Okay. Now you know. Anyways, so serpent tempts um, Adam and Eve, tempts them to be like God. And so what are they doing? They're choosing to believe a lie about God. They eat the fruit and they rebel against the loving giver of life. So God, creator, pursuer, all-powerful, all-knowing, shows up to Adam and Eve, and what does he say? Notice, this is uh, starting in Genesis 3, verse 8. It says this, And they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Now notice, first of all, the blame shifting that's happening in the story. Couples, you ever want to blame shift, you're going right back to Adam and Eve. That's a side nugget. Anyways, but what is God's response in all of this? God never makes a single statement. 
he never makes a, a, a definitive statement. He always asks a question. Every single line in this verse, in this passage, in the, one of the most pivotal moments of all of Scripture, God is always asking questions. And what is the question? Where are you? Does God not know where he physically is? Is he trying to find him behind a specific tree or bush? He's not playing hide and seek with them. He's recognizing that because of their sin, there is now a relational distance between them. In Hebrew thought, sin is not just rebellion against God, although it definitely is that. But sin is more than that. Sin is actually an understanding of relational separation. When Adam and Eve sinned, those who were united with one another and united in their relationship with God are now distant from one another. He's asking them, where are you in relationship to me? You were once walking with me in the cool of the day, every day, and now all of a sudden, you're hiding from me. You're, he, there is now a physical, emotional, spiritual separation because of the sin in their life. And so God asks them the question to draw them out, to give them an opportunity to voice what's happening in their hearts and to bring them back relationally. I can't help but believe that God is doing the same thing here with Elijah. He's not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. He's not asking it to physically locate Elijah. God's not expecting to hear, well, the angel told me to come. Which we don't see in the text, by the way. All we know is he's here. And God asks him to draw out Elijah's heart. So what do we find in Elijah's heart? Verse 10. What is his response? What came out when God drew him out? This is what he says. Verse 10. I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's how he says it in the, the New Living Translation. So 40 days, Elijah is now in a bit of a better place than he was uh, when he went out into the desert, right? He's a little bit more articulate. He's not suicidal. He's able to get some rest and after the journey in the wilderness, but he's obviously still not at his best. He's still reeling from Ahab and Jezebel's murderous plot to kill him. Now, I wish we had a video or a recording to hear how Elijah said this. Now, it's clear he's not coming from a place of joy. Like, that's a fair guess, right? He's not, yay, I've been zealous for you. But knowing the story thus far, I think we can start to hear some complexity of the emotions that are in his words. I believe that in Elijah's statement, there is a few different things happening. And I think partially, this is an accusation. It's an accusation against God. It's like Elijah saying, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've done my part. And yet, still here I am 
in the wilderness, right? Or it's like Elijah saying, hey, God, I did my part. Are you going to hold up your end of the bargain here? Like, I did my job. God, now it's your job. Have you ever felt like that when around God and what he's doing in your life? Where you're like, hey, I'm doing my job. I'm being faithful. I'm showing up. I'm doing one, two, three, whatever your one, two, three is. And then you look around into your life and you say, um, I thought if I did blank, then God would do blank. And you do what you're supposed to do, and yet God doesn't do what you think he's supposed to do. Please don't tell me I'm the only one that's done that before. Right? This is, the, this is what we hear elsewhere in Scripture in the story of the two lost sons in Luke chapter 15. Traditionally known as the, prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. For those of you that don't know, let me give you a brief recap. A father has two sons. One of them runs away with his portion of the inheritance. And he squanders it on parties and reckless living. He comes to his senses and returns home to work for his father. So he's like, hey, I'm just going to do the menial task. I'll just come to work. But instead, the father lavishes him with grace, throws the feast of all feasts to welcome him home, and restores him back into his proper place in the family. That's the younger son. Now the older son, what happens? He does not like that. He starts to complain, and he says this in Luke 15, verses 29-30. He says this, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Listen to the accusation. Just like Elijah. He's been serving. He's been faithful. And by implication, he thinks he deserves a better response from God. I've been serving you. I've been following you. I've been faithful to you. I've done what you ask. And yet, here I am in the wilderness. Here I am on the run for my life. I'm still here. I'm still kicking. I've been faithful. And yet, I look around and I don't see any fruit for my faithfulness. How often do our hearts go there like Elijah's? We expect God to work in relation to our faithfulness. More faithful I am, more fruitful I should be. We don't recognize this, but this is a very, very subtle form of the prosperity gospel. Now we've done a good job and we've gotten over the financial part of the prosperity gospel, right? Like if I give more, I get more. The church has done a good job to weed that out. But in essence, we can think that if I obey, then God will bless me. The prosperity gospel is still at work in our hearts though. We can find ourselves still obeying God because we have this unspoken expectation That we will get what we want. And not only that, we will get what we believe we deserve. I've called this the vending machine approach to God. Put in faithfulness, you get out something in return. And here we are in the wilderness, putting in our faithfulness to God and kicking and screaming that the, the 
bag of chips that we want is just hung up and so we're shaking God like, why aren't you giving me what I want? I paid for that. Elijah has a little bit of an accusation. Finger wagging. What are you doing, God? I've done my part. But I think there's more going on here too. If you've been doing the feel it, name it practice, you're likely discovering that at any given moment, you could be feeling a multitude of emotions that are often and sometimes in contradiction to one another. Like, why am I feeling joy and anger all in this right now? Like, I don't even know how to deal with that. I can hear the anger from his accusation, but I also think there's more, and I think he's really deeply, deeply disappointed. Remember, what was Elijah's job as a prophet? To hear the voice of God and to speak on God's behalf to the people. His job was to remind God's people to return to covenant faithfulness. So his job was to say, hey, let me tell you what God's saying and bring you back to being faithful to God. So he looks around and he, what does he think? He's all alone. The one job you had. Have you ever heard somebody say you had one job? Or see those memes? You had one job. Elijah, you had one job. And what was his? Bring people back. Bring them with him to the presence of God. And yet he's all alone. I'm the only one left. All your people have deserted you. I had one job to be faithful to you. And instead, they have all forsaken you. I mean, imagine the depth of a failure that Elijah would feel in this moment. I can find solace in this story because, remember, just a few weeks before this, God did amazing things to him, spectacular things, and yet even Elijah at this moment, it feels like it was all pointless. Elijah felt like a failure to the call of God on his life. So when God asks him where he is, he's in the spot of a failure. I want you to think of a time when you felt like that. Parents, it could be your children and how they're currently behaving. You're doing everything you can, and yet you just don't see the fruit of the labor. You may have adult children that have walked away from the faith. God, what is that all about? It could be your missional community or a discipleship relationship where you've done everything you know how to do in that relationship. You've prayed with them. You've prayed for them. You've brought to them the word. You've gospeled them as much as you possibly can. And yet you look at the fruit of their life and there's, it doesn't seem like there's any fruit at all. There's zero progress that's been made. Maybe you felt like a failure from building relationships with neighbors and you've been trying to pursue over and over and over again. And yet it leads to no response. Think of that level of disappointment. That level of, man, I was supposed to do this. And I just, I, I don't see anything around it. The emotional wilderness that that could be. Faithfulness to Jesus often leads to experiences of failure. But he does something with that. He doesn't leave Elijah in this place. God has clearly led Elijah. He clearly has worked through Elijah. And yet here he is feeling like a failure. But God's not done with him. He's a redeeming God. 
And all of this, this whole journey is about to be redeemed. So God hears Elijah's response. What does God say to Elijah in this story? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't correct him. We find out later in the passage that Elijah is actually factually incorrect. He's not alone. There's more people. So God doesn't say, actually, you're wrong. Let me tell you when you're wrong. He doesn't correct him in the moment. He doesn't rebuke him. What does he do? He says, okay. Like a good father, he guides him. And he guides him to this amazing experience. And I think that this is even more profound. And I think this is what all of our hearts long for. So verse 11 says that Elijah is to go out on the side of the mountain, right? So huge Easter egg. Remember, uh, this calls back to Mount Sinai for all God's people. So remember where Elijah is right now. He's on Mount Horeb, which is the mountain range that Mount Sinai is in. He's where God's people have had unbelievable experiences with God. Mount Sinai is where God's people meet God. It's where Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus 3. It's where the pillar of cloud and fire led his people in Exodus 13 and Exodus 19 and Exodus 24. It's where fire descended before Moses received the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. It's also where God brought Moses to the side of the mountain where he would pass by him in Exodus chapter 33. So the alarm bells are likely going off in his head with all this. This is his story. This is what he remembers. This is what he knows from his ethnic and religious heritage. This is where you go to meet God. But what he knows and what he experiences are different. He goes out to the mountain and he encounters only what I could imagine to be a very intensely terrifying moment. And yet unbelievably life-changing. So he's on the side of the mountain. Elijah first experiences what? A strong wind. You're like, okay, cool, it was windy here. I know what that feels like. No, no, no. Listen to how the text describes the type of wind. A great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks. Can you imagine standing on the side of a mountain and experiencing a wind so powerful that the very foundation of what you're standing on is uh, crumbling into pieces. You look all around you and rocks are falling all over the place. Yeah, it's peaceful. Right? No, that's terrifying. This is unbelievably spectacular. I mean, think of all the CGI and all the movies. Like, we can have an imagination what this looks like because we've seen these things before. But what does the text say about this? God is not in the wind. What? Elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, the wind is a reference. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 3, wind is the, uh, uh, the ah, excuse me, it is described as God's presence is the symbol of wind. And after the wind, what comes? An earthquake. Okay, so as I sat to prepare this, I literally get a notification on my phone that there was an earthquake in San Jose. I just happened to be flying through San Jose this week. And I was like, great. Why that's a big deal is I, uh, this is, here's, this may be too, you may not want to know this. But anyways, I was, uh, had PTSD from earthquakes when I was a kid. 
literally had to go to a psychologist. I had to go through therapy. Because of the small earthquakes we experienced as a child, I experienced as a child, like freaked me out. To this day, I like, if I hear a low rumble in the distance, there's like a little bit of an anxiety that forms. But now because I know it, I can adapt to it. And like, no, that's, that's nothing to be afraid of. But my body, the body keeps the score. So I see earthquake. I see notification. I'm reading this text. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. If I was standing there, I would be crying like a little baby. Like, no joke, no doubt, I'd be glad I'd be alone because I'd probably soiled myself. I don't know. I would be freaking out. Awe-inspiring, spectacular. But God wasn't in the earthquake. And I think the third one always catches my attention. Because there's more going on here than meets the eye. He's not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. What's the third experience? Fire. If you were Elijah, what do you think of when you think of fire? Fire would bring up all sorts of memories, right? Just a few weeks before, it was fire that came down and consumed the sacrifice and all the water as he was defeating Mount Carmel, defeating the uh, prophets of Baal. So he's like, hey, God showed up me like this before in fire. This must be where God is, right? He's done it before, so he's going to do it again. He'd recall God speaking to, Mount, uh, to Moses in what? A burning bush. Fire. Okay? He would remember all the stories that he's heard in all the time. And yet, God was not in the fire. Now, remember, this is his, his historical heritage. This was how his people encountered God, was through fire. So you can imagine him standing there seeing fire and being like, okay, if fire, this must be it because this is how God works through other people. Other people experience God this way. Therefore, this must be my moment to experience God like they experience them. But have you ever sat in a missional community gathering or in an environment like this and heard how other people experience God and you're like, I've never had that before. Or maybe you've had that and you're like, oh man, what they, how they encountered God was so powerful. Like, I guess that's never going to happen to me. So I'm just going to go hang out with them and ride the coattails of their encounter with God. It's not going to happen for me. I got, I'm, I'm probably more like Elijah, the no name in the scriptures. I can't be like Elijah where God's going to show up. So what you do, you hang on in the coattails. You let their encounter with God encourage you. Their processing of God's word feed you. Their encounter with God in the scriptures feed you. But all that's only secondary. It's digested through someone else. We will never be satisfied with someone else's encounter with God. It will encourage us a little bit. It will remind us. But it was, it was never meant to be enough. You and I and everybody, we were made to have our own. So he's probably reminded of others' encounters, but he's also remembering his own encounter. He's remembering what took place on first, in 1 Kings chapter 18. He's remembering how God showed up in that way. So God showed up for him like this in the past. 
it would probably be easy to assume because God showed up this way in the past, he's probably going to do the same thing in the present. Think about a time that you've encountered God in the past. Maybe it was reading the scriptures and something jumped off the page and left you floored. Maybe you were at an MC meeting and God spoke to you through someone. It could have been an amazing musical worship experience where God spoke through a song and you just knew fully that he was with you. Those are awesome and those are wonderful. And yet, if we're expecting to encounter God in the same way we did in the past, we're probably going to be looking for fire like Elijah did and say God's not in the fire. If we're expecting like, okay, God, you did this this way before for me. You spoke this way. I encountered you. I heard you. I felt you. Whatever that may be. And yet, you're like, okay, I'm going to just go and do those same things, right? Somebody else has done this besides me, right? Okay, God, you did this. So it's a formula. X plus Y. Did, okay, so let me just do that same thing here. And I expect God to show up. What happens for Elijah? His past experiences do not determine how his present experience with God is going to be. He's benefited. It's amazing. But he, Elijah didn't encounter God through the ways of others or even through the ways that he had previously done. He didn't hear God in the spectacular. What does the text say? He met God in the stillness and silence. A space beyond words. So look at verse 12 with me. How did he encounter? What did God say? How did he encounter God? At the end of this verse, there's a few Hebrew words. And so I want to, on the screen, I'm going to show you the different ways that this is uh, translated. So in the NASB, it says, it's, NASB is much more of a literal translation. It's, it's like word for word. So it's kind of clunky to read. Uh, it's a, it says a gentle blowing. The NRSV is a, a sound of sheer silence. The NLT and the message, both more uh, translating the concepts, trying to understand the concepts, not word for word. It calls it a gentle whisper or the message gentle and quiet whisper. The ESV is a sound of a low whisper, but I love the footnote on the ESV. And this is what it says, a sound, a thin silence. Literally what the words are. So what did Elijah how did Elijah encounter God? A sound. A thin silence. I'm going to make the case that God did not actually, he did not say anything. I believe that this was a beyond words experience. This thin silence is where God did not speak, but God was present. It's remarkable if you think about it. All these spectacular displays. Wind breaking rocks and mountains apart. Fire coming down. Earthquake. Unbelievably spectacular moments. And how does God show up to Elijah in this moment? A sound. A thin silence. But don't miss the massive impact this has on Elijah. We've been talking about the journey to renewal. What is renewal? How are we renewed? Simply stated, it's this. To be renewed is to encounter the presence and person of God. 
To be renewed is to encounter the presence and person of God. It doesn't need to be spectacular with metaphorical smoke machines and fireworks. But the whole purpose of the journey through the wilderness, all the difficulties of the pain, all the longing for God, all the times where you don't know what's going on in the world, all of that is to create in you and me a sense need for God himself. And this that you would know and experience the triune God, Father, the Son, the Spirit, and that you would know him in the fullness, in the biblical sense, which is bodily, spiritually, and emotionally. I'm, Ephesians 3, and I'm only going to read verse 19. It's, he prays that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever noticed that term surpasses knowledge? This isn't something that we can just cognitively know about. If you think that you can sparse out the Greek words and be able to do that so that you can then encounter God, is that one way? Yes. But is that the only way? No. Sometimes we encounter God not through our brains, but through our whole being. That's what Elijah's doing here. That's how God shows up with Elijah. It surpasses knowledge. It's fully embodied. It's not how it was before, but this is something new and fresh. This past week, I was in a, a counseling session, and during the time, I was sharing about some fears that I was experiencing. Um, this was a newer emotion in the last couple months that I was kind of wading my way in. And as we were talking, my friend asked me, he says, okay, he's like, Justin, have you gone to Jesus with your fears? And if so, what has he said? I was like, well, dang, that's a good question. I'm going to steal that one. Have you brought those to Jesus? I, well, I, I taught the church to do that. I should probably do that too, right? And then what did you hear? Now, here's a funny thing. I knew what I was going to hear. Because what it, when you encounter fear in the scriptures... Fear is one of, it's literally spoken of all throughout scriptures. What's the antidote to fear that we find in scripture? Fear not, for I am with you. It is I. The presence of God is the thing that takes away the fear. Now I know that theologically. I know my Bible. I know what it says. And yet, it's completely different actually hearing God say that to you than knowing what God would say to you. Like, okay, I know the answer to this problem. I'll just do the answer. But it's very different, much more profound. And I believe the way we were designed to not just knowledge know that God is here. Knowledge know that we can encounter and experience God. Knowledge know that the Spirit meets with us as his people, knowledge know that the one who created the heavens and the earth, the all-powerful one, is literally in our presence right now by the Spirit of God. It's one thing to know with our brains. It's another thing to surpass knowledge and actually experience it.
many of you know, over my sabbatical, I had this encounter with God. I, we've shared it before. I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point now. But one where God, it was over the last few years, all the hardship, all the difficulty, all the pain of the last three to four years, the wilderness experience, the coming to an end of yourself, all that. What's the point of it? It's to bring you into the very presence of God. Because here's the thing. Once you have an, an encounter with God, now it doesn't not need to be you on the side of the mountain having wind blow. I'm not suggesting that. But once you experience that moment of encountering God, you're able to look back and be thankful for all that you brought, God brought you through. Because you realize that you would have, and this is my story, I would have never known my need for God and desperation for God if I had gotten what I wanted in the timing that I wanted it. I needed to be deeply thankful because the coming to an end of myself brought me to a desperation and need to directly encounter God himself. What was Elijah's response to all this? Verse 13. He says he wrapped his face in the cloak. This is a highly symbolic moment. This is a sign of reverence, of worship. He knows that he just experienced God. Like Moses who put a veil over his head or Isaiah who covers his face in Isaiah 6. It's a common recognition of our sinfulness in the sight of a holy God. He knows he just met God. A journey to renewal climaxes and comes to a culmination when you and I get to have a face-to-face encounter with God. Now, we know one day that will happen when he completely renews and restores all the creation. He's physically here, resurrected body and all. And yet, the scriptures show us that renewal happens when we encounter the present, the person, and the power of God. To develop thin spaces in our life where we can be with God regularly. To develop an internal sense that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you can encounter and meet God there. The last few years have been tough for many of us, right? Has not been an easy journey. There's personal difficulties, corporate difficulties, lots of moving pieces, information overload. I can belabor the point. But I've gotten to the point now, because of what I've seen God do, is that when God brings about difficulty, I can now start to be able to ask the question, wow, how's God going to show up in this? Wouldn't have been able to say that 15 years ago. Our need is to encounter God, to meet with him, to know him, fully embodied. Not just with our brains, although it absolutely includes that, but with everything we have to know that God is present.